Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked, the way of the wicked will perish. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. We are starting a new sermon series uh, today called Thoughts and Prayers. I shared this uh, maybe a few months ago now, but we were watching a, a Nuggets game on TV, and this is right as the, um, the uh, Israel-Hamas war had begun, um, and they had uh, flags uh, erected at one end of the, uh, of the arena, and the announcer went through and talked about them, and then he said, our thoughts are with you. And it kind of just fell flat. The lack of our thoughts and prayers are with you, or we are praying for those, or however else it would be uh, said and has been said, just felt empty. I think to be honest, the phrase, I'll pray for you, can seem pretty empty sometimes as well, pretty bland. But the reality of it is if we are actually praying for one another and not just saying it, Prayer is one of the most caring, loving, God-entranced things we can do. We live in a really weird time right now. I don't know if you know that. I think over the last couple of years, we've all experienced a very weird time. Uh, but the philosopher Charles Taylor calls it the secular age. It's weird because it is the first time in history, in the history of the world, that believing in God is deemed unnatural. We have to be convinced that there is a God more often than we have to be convinced that there isn't a God. Atheism and agnosticism seems to be the more common belief or at least belief structure of the day, and it is a belief. There is an assent to believe that this is how the world works, just as there is an assent to believe if there is a God as well, if we believe in a God. We've been slowly moving this direction over the course of the past 500 years through uh, the Renaissance age, through the uh, Reformation, through the Industrial Age as well, as well. And really in the last 200 years or so, this secular um, worldview has come into being. Taylor points out that this means that we have become disenchanted we look for natural causes for everything. We have lost a sense of the transcendent. Nothing outside of, uh, there is nothing outside of our imminent world that exists is kind of the natural belief of the day. So the belief of a transcendent God is, is lost on us. We don't look for him and therefore we don't see him. We do still look for transcendent experiences, but we find them in the things that are closest to us those things that we can experience through our five senses, beauty, art, uh, music, food, outdoor experiences, mountaintop, literal mountaintop experiences. 
We have moved from an open and vulnerable worldview to a closed and self-sufficient worldview. And I would posit that we have uh, become more closed and self-sufficient in our own, in our understanding of ourselves as well. What we need, I would argue, is a redeemed imagination to be able to see God at work, to be able to see God as active, to be able to see him near, both transcendent and imminent, both mighty and glorious God over all of creation, but also deeply involved and intimately uh, knowing the concerns that are in our lives. I believe this is one of the many things that Jesus came to redeem our imagination. They need to be jolted awake. They need to be enlivened. They need to be enchanted. We need to be entranced once more with God. Jesus took on humanity in his incarnation. He told stories. He preached sermons. He took naps. Those are redeemable as well. He died and rose again so that the fullness of our humanity could be redeemed, including our imaginations. Primarily, I think he did this through prayer. He prayed over food. He prayed over people to be healed. Uh, He prayed so that the dead would rise again. He prayed over storms. And he prayed for us even as well. And he also gave us a prayer, the Lord's Prayer. We pray this every week as we close out our communion liturgy as a church. Some of us pray it every day, personally as well. It's both prescriptive and descriptive. It tells us what to pray and it tells us how to pray. It is a prayer. It guides our prayer life. It pokes and prods our imaginations to life to see God is still at work. In a few weeks, we're going to be getting to the Lord's Prayer But first, we need to resuscitate our imaginations. The tools that God has given us to do this are found primarily in the Psalms. And so over the course of the next three weeks, starting today, we're going to look at Psalm 1, Psalm 2, and Psalm 23. Um, And today we're going to begin with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 serves as the entrance into a God-entranced, God-enchanted world. It enlivens our imaginations through story, through roots, and language. If I was going to, I didn't, but if I was going to, now I forget even the word, be, you know, very preachery and have everything start with the same letter, whatever that. Not an acrostic. Alliteration, thank you. Sometimes my brain works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, But it would be... uh, Law, leaves, and language, but I'm calling it story, tree, and language. There's still language. So, Story. He gives us a story. Verses 1 and 2, again, he writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is not just some word art we hang on the wall, but it is. it means happy. It means fortunate. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates it, um, God delights in the one who delights in his law. He must really like you. 
the um, literal translation of the Hebrew is blessings. It's not blessed. It's not a status that we have, but it's blessings upon the man who. And man is just masculine. It's just a language. We use a pretty literal translation here. It is not male or female, but it is humanity. Blessings upon the, the humans who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, stands not in the way of sinners, sits not in the seat of scoffers. You see this movement from movement to lack of movement, this less motion, less life, more stagnancy each and every time, more entrenched in a life apart from God. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on it day and night. Law is this word Torah. It comes from the Hebrew word yara, to throw something. It almost sounds like what our fourth grader says when he throws something, to yeet something, right? But this yeeting hits its mark. Like speech, living speech, is javelins thrown from one person to another and it pierces them. But God's word, his law, is aimed, it's intentioned, it's personal. These words get inside of us and they work their meaning in our lives. Nothing is dead or lifeless in them. Karl Barth, great theologian, says, I've read many books, but the Bible reads me. It's God's story that gets in it. Law is a perfectly trans, uh, perfectly acceptable translation of Torah, but Torah's first meaning is story. The Torah specifically refers to the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament or the Hebrew canon, which contains the law. But as most of us know, many of us know, it contains a lot more of that as well. It begins with a tree planted in the midst of four rivers, the tree of life. It begins with creation and fall, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, the Passover, wandering in the wilderness. The law is given twice, actually, probably why it stands out so much. And the vision of God's people entering into the rest of the land that's been promised to them as the people of Israel since Abraham. This is the story that defined Israel and the story that God continues to tell in our lives. We're told to meditate on it. This word brings up the image of a lion eating and murmuring over its food. It is the yum of a meal. It is the gastronomical groan of pleasure as you eat. And for some of us, myself included, it is rather involuntary when the food is that delicious. It is devouring God's story that we digest in our bodies so that it gives new life to us. It feeds us. It redeems us. It enlivens our imaginations for the energies of salvation. Meditating is chewing, swallowing, digesting, and absorbing the redemptive story of God in our lives. And we are story people. As we sat around in um, Holland, Michigan this last week in the evenings, we sat around and we told stories all times, usually ending in uh, boisterous laughter because those are the most fun stories to tell, right? We watched Seinfeld, we watched The Office, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, all of these things live deeply in us because we are story people. 
when um, I was giving my uh, defense, uh, one of the questions from uh, the cohort was, uh, have you read uh, Pura Parker's uh, The Art of Gathering? And the first thing that came to mind was a quote from Michael Scott. Read it. I own it. But no, I haven't read it. Uh, (laughs) Peterson says, stories are verbal acts of hospitality. They invite us in. God invites us into what he is doing. In counseling, a major way in which we uh, begin to understand ourselves more healthfully is to retell our stories and for the counselor to reframe them so that our stories can be, we can be restoried in our own lives. The only way to do this is to get God's story in us, to meditate prayerfully on Scripture day and night, to read, to read deeply. The Bible is not a how-to book. It's not a long book of aphorisms. It is a story, and we need to absorb it into our being so that we can have God's redemptive life rooting us beside streams of living water, prayer, brings us into the story of God's redemptive work in creation. And it roots us. It gives us, creates us to be a tree. Verses 3 and 4. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The tree provides the image of who a person is who prays. When you pray, you become a tree. He or she is planted by streams of water. Now, we may picture in our heads a beautiful Colorado meadow with a stream running through it and a tall tree that is deeply rooted next to it. But the Israelites likely wrote this psalm while they were in exile. These trees would have been planted near the Babylonian irrigation canals, they were forced to work. The significance of this is that the Israelites weren't praying in the shadow of their beloved temple where God dwelt on earth. They were praying while they were distant from God. Eugene Peterson says, we put off praying until we are where we think we should be or want to be. We let our fantasies or circumstances distract us from attending to the word of God that is aimed right where we are and invites our answers from that spot. The interesting thing is that the psalm directs our attention not into the ethereal or the invisible or to the fantastical life, but directly to the natural, visible world about us. Praying to God begins by looking at a tree Tree comes from the old English word trio, which also gives us the word true. There's this deeply rooted idea. Prayer begins not with what we don't see, but with what we do see and hear. And God's truth is where we put down our roots. Doing this, we bear fruit in season. It doesn't say that we bear fruit all the times, but at the appropriate times. This often requires patience with ourselves and with God. Our leaf never, never withers. It's a nourished life. It's a, a life that has life in it, and it prospers. This is not a biblical proof text to say that money grows on trees. This is a life that gives life to others. Pre- trees 
provides sustenance, shelter, and benefit to others, to birds, to humans, to creatures. Trees remind us that we are in a place rooted and connected to a geography and that God is at work right here in this place in our lives. The contrast is of the wicked. They're like chaff, the outside of the wheat kernel that is blown away by the wind. There is no rooting, there is no prospering, there are no leaves, there is no fruit. Chaff is usually separated by taking a basket and kind of throwing it up in the air, and the wheat uh, berries would fall back down, but the chaff would just blow away in whatever breeze was there. A friend of mine, one of the guys presenting, uh, lives in Seattle, and he said he would take these, somebody who was generous and would give them uh, uh, a place to go and take riding retreats. And it was overlooking the Puget Sound, uh, which if you've been to Seattle, you know how beautiful and wonderful it is. And you, he said you would look over it, and if you went there and you just said, I want to see a, a whale or a porpoise today, you would not see it. He said, but if you sat there, and you um, focused yourself on what was happening, you would first see the boats moving about. You would see people moving through and all the mechanical things happening. You would then begin to see kind of how the, the waves moved. You would begin to see the flow of the water take place. And then you would begin to notice um, the disturbances in the water. You would begin to see... <laughs> you'd begin to hear no's. Uh, you would begin to see... Um, where the water doesn't look quite right. And if you kept your eye on that water, you would almost always see a porpoise, and if you're lucky, a whale. You would begin to see the life that is under the water there. We often don't just see God at work. We want to. Sometimes he shows up and performs miracles before our eyes, but most often he waits for us patiently to pay attention getting our imaginations fixed on him, and then he acts. A slow disturbance in the water, a long drawn-out recovery, a slow return to him, a recovery of playfulness, of being God entranced. There's a reordering of our lives that takes place that's just not done in New Year's resolutions. One person said, as if I could just resolve myself to be a better person. No, we have to be planted like a tree, sometimes we need to be transplanted and let our roots dig deep into the rich soil of God's story. When we do this, when we stare at trees praying, we begin to have a language. Language in verse 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked, the way of the wicked will not perish. Will perish. Mark can't read today. That's fine. We read about judgment and righteousness, wickedness, knowing, ways of being, and perishing. And what we often forget is that these are relational words. Righteousness refers to a relationship that we have with God. Wickedness refers to a relationship that we don't have with God. It's not self-actualized ways of beings. These are a relationship. And at the core, relationships are language. There are traditionally three types of language. Language two is the language of information. It's knowing and naming things. This is the language of schools and learning. 
Language three is the language of motivation. We speak it, and it influences people to action, hopefully. It's purpose-driven language. Parents, as parents, we love this language, right? No, stop it. Quiet down. Sit down. Eat your dinner. Stay at the table. Put your shoes on. We're leaving. Go to bed. Stay in bed. It's time for bed. Advertising and politics love language three also. But language one is the language of relationships and personal intimacy. It's our first language. It's our primary language. Perhaps it's just a coup or a cry at the beginning. But it's the language that we use to communicate love and affection. Language one is the language that reminds us that we're human beings made for relationships, not just human doings. We are not just productive machines in this life. We exist for relationships with one another, not for the tasks that we perform. And language one is the language of prayer. It's a language that shapes our relationship with God. It's a language that gets to the core of who we are. Prayers, the Psalms, and the Lord's Prayer remind us who we are and stir our imaginations for who God is creating us to be. It is not talking about God. We love to do it. That is like what we prefer to do, right? It is talking to God. It's personal language because God and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is a personal God. Personal relationships have a lot of aspects to them. Stacy and I love to laugh together. We love to eat together. We love to pray together. We love to whisper sweet nothings in one another's ears. Wish that we did that more. We listen to one another, but we also express our anger with one another, our sadness, our vulnerability to one another. We open ourselves up to each other, hoping that they open up to us as well. This is not at the expense of the relationship, but so that we can be deeper. We get angry and we fight because we love each other. And I know this is not always true in every relationship. But it is true, a prayer directed to a personal God. A relationship with God is not just warm fuzzies. It's not just politeness or niceties because it's personal. It's a relationship. It's cries of help. It's calls for God to wake up. It's gut-wrenching anger at the injustices that have been allowed. It's for a parent to stop abusing alcohol. It's for a spouse to be healed. It's for a, a child to return. It's for a marriage to not disintegrate. The cries of being seen in the midst of our pain, our loss, and our abandonment. And that God would not abandon us either. Prayer is relational language. Eugene Rosenstock Hussey says, Language is not speech. It is a full circle from word to sound to perception to understanding to feeling to memorizing to acting and back to the word about the act thus achieved. And before the listener can become a listener, something has to happen to him. He must expect. Prayer expects God to answer. Prayer expects God to act. Prayer expects God. Prayer gives us entrance into a God-enchanted landscape and entrances our imaginations with God. Truth is, we're going to be distracted in this life. It's full of distractions. 
our senses are going to dull, our imaginations will run dry, we will run to our fantasies, or we will do the thing that is closest um, and most uh, pressing in our lives. We'll not pause to pray. We'll not pray without ceasing, as Paul instructs. We'll run on about our day and our lives, forgetting God's story, forgetting to root ourselves in Him near streams of water, forgetting the language needed to deepen our relationship with God, we will become like chaff. We will be blown about by the wind. But Paul also reminds us that God is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or imagine. This is the God who knows our failures. All our half-hearted efforts, our weak faith in him, he's seen it all before. He's not surprised by any of it. And yet, he sends his son, Jesus, to live his redemptive story, to be the tree of life planted in living water, to perform visible miracles, to speak personal language to a personal people and to a personal God whom he calls Father and gives us access to him as Father as well. Jesus is the one, is the God who is both imminent and transcendent, the one who redeems our imaginations to see that he is still at work in our lives and in his creation around us. He is the one who gave himself over to the wickedness of the world to seemingly perish, but was raised to life again, my God, our Father. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that um, we can hold fast to promises like your mercies are new every morning, that you will not leave us or forsake us, and so often it feels like you're not anywhere around. Lord, help us to have enlivened imaginations, to be able to begin to see you. Help us to long for prayers, a prayer life that uses personal language. Help us to long for um, the hope and the mercy and the grace that you have for our lives. Help us to live life in your Son to know that he is redeeming and renewing our lives in you. Give us the language of prayer. Call us, beckon us to you. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.